I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. My guest for today is author Harriet Brown, and Harriet has so much wisdom to share about her experience with her daughter having an eating disorder and also the impact that it had on her own way of viewing herself. That's just a nugget a little kernel of what we're talking about today. So there's so much more. It's a great episode. All right, everyone, let's do it. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am thrilled to have Harriet Brown, incredible author here on the show. Harriet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so happy to have you. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, your writing, how it came about, and we'll sort of start there. Sure. Um, well, I've been a writer my whole life. Um, started as a poet, actually, and eventually started writing a lot of nonfiction. I'm a journalist, um, and I teach journalism at Syracuse University, actually, but um, my, it's funny, I don't think of myself as a professor, even though I am one, but uh, my identity to myself is writer. And uh, through my career, I've written a lot about um, weight and health, body image, uh, families, kids, like, that seems to be the subject matter I return to again and again. I've written a bunch of books, uh, some of them on the subjects of weight and health and body image, some of them not. And I'm just delighted to be here in this conversation. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. I guess, you know, I'm going to ask you the, the two books that I would love to talk about on the show today is The Body of Truth and Brave Girl Eating. So, where would you like to start? Which one seems more in a, in the appropriate sequence to talk about Harriet? Well, I wrote Brave Girl Eating first. And so maybe we start there. And actually that then led me to write Body of Truth. So let's do it. Let's do it. So first of all, it's actually called Brave Girl Eating, A Family's Struggle with Anorexia. So what was it like writing this book? You were talking about your daughter's experience with anorexia nervosa. What's what's it like for you, Harriet? Was this therapeutic? Was this 
hard to write? What what came up for you? I, I would say it was very therapeutic and also hard to write. Uh, when my daughter got sick, this was back in 2005, I believe. Yeah, 2005. Um, I looked for, you know, because I'm a writer and I'm a reader, I wanted to read, you know, what other people had gone through. And um, there was almost nothing out there. I found one book, uh, and that was uh, by uh, Laura Collins, um, you know, I think it was called Eating With Your Anorexic, something like that. So that was the one book I found that kind of spoke to the experience that we wanted to have and were having, which is to say that, um, you know, I didn't like the medical advice that we got when my daughter got sick, which basically was, oh, she's going to be sick for the rest of her life. She's going to be in and out of hospitals. You know, don't talk about food. It's not about food. Um, it's your fault in, in that, that overtly and also very, you know, covertly got that message and you need to separate yourself from her. And all of my instincts were the opposite. It was to get her to eat sort of, uh, Mary Tantillo. I don't know if you know her. She is a wonderful nurse therapist in the Rochester, New York area. And she, I didn't know this at the time, but, uh, but later it seemed perfect. She talks about love bombing uh, people who have eating disorders, and that's exactly what our instincts were. So we went through the process, um, and it was really hard. And at the end, I thought, or you know, a few years later, I thought, I want to help other parents who are going through this. I want, you know, knowing that not what we did isn't necessarily the right way or the wrong way. It was just this was our experience. This is how it went for us. And I thought, you know, if that could be helpful to other people, there's that whole thing where you want to make meaning out of trauma and that makes you feel better. Um, so I wrote the book and, um, since it was published in 2010, so that was 11 years ago. I mean, I've probably heard from thousands and thousands of families. So I'm happy that it's out there. Um, again, not saying it's, you know, it's one of many resources now that parents and families and people themselves can find and, you know, find helpful. So, you know, one of the things that I thought was so wonderful, I was looking on your website and you have a reading guide with to, to these two books. And some of the things that come up are so phenomenal and things that, 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 I don't think people are taking into consideration possibly when their child or loved one has been diagnosed with an eating disorder. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk about things such as, and I'll just start with this, you talk about what nurses, what school nurses need to be on the lookout for. What's your advice? Well, um, our daughter's illness you know, as best as we can tell, uh, was triggered by, not caused by, but was triggered by a lot of stuff she heard at school in like school health classes, right? Like, and I've heard this from a lot of other families. So middle school, you know, you get the health class, you talk about nutrition and there's always, oh my God, the obesity epidemic, our kids are too fat, you know? So my daughter being, 
you know, having the sort of personality type that's often associated with anorexia in particular, perfectionist, like a good little, she was the oldest child, good little doobie, you know, follow the rules. I remember her coming home and saying, you know, it, we need to move more and eat less. And, you know, dessert is bad. I'm not going to eat dessert anymore. And, you know, not paying that much attention to it at the time because I was so steeped in those messages and in diet culture myself. Um, that I, I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah, we should all be more careful, blah, blah. But I think for her, that was the beginning of a real fall down the rabbit hole. Um, and so, you know, it really pisses me off that those messages are so common and so unbalanced in school settings, you know. And I know that there's such a strong bias against fatness against, you know, there's such a strong bias toward thinness, toward physical activity, um, that it's, it's pushed on kids in this way that is really not contextualized. And, you know, one size doesn't fit all, obviously, right? So, um, so yeah, so, but, but the fact that that, that happens systemically, you know, when I started to understand all this, you know, during and after our daughter's recovery, um, it shocked me and distressed me. Like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, a kid, of course, is going to believe what they hear in school or certainly a kid like my daughter was going to. So. So, yeah, that kind of thing really, um, you know, and I think that People are maybe starting to push back a little bit. Maybe schools are. I don't know. I've given a lot of talks at schools to school nurses, to like school counseling centers. And, you know, they see the problems. They know what kids are struggling with, but they do it anyway. Which And that's about diet culture, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, of course. And so you're right. There little sponges and they internalize everything and they hear something and they don't know. First of all, as adults, we get bamboozled by the diet industry, by the diet culture, yeah. by the, by the lose weight in 30 days, blah, blah, blah. So, and, and hopefully as adults, we know to question this and say, mm, is that actually real or, you know, whatever. Children don't know that there can be other ideas, and it does. It gets internalized. And also, if your daughter struggled from any kind of anxiety, hearing things like exercise is healthy for you, low fat is healthy, desserts are not good for you, her little anxious system just <laughs> grabbed onto that Harriet and and it became her mantra of like, this is how I stay safe in the world. Yes. And she 100% <clears throat> is an anxious person. So yeah. And I mean, I would say, look, I'm an adult who's studied this, who's read about it, who has strong, and I'm still susceptible to it. So of course, kids, and you know, some, I teach um, classes at Syracuse University. I teach a class called Fat and Feminism, where we sort of unpack some of this stuff. And you know, so these are smart, well-read 20-year-olds, and they have no understanding of this. Like, it's it's shocking to me. Like, they, they don't have any sense of critical thinking around these issues. You know, the one thing that I tell them that always shocks them is that 
body, you know, the, the current ideal body has not always been the current ideal body. They cannot believe that because they're so steeped in it that they just assume, well, of course, it's always been this way. This is just the, the objective truth. And, um, and I love teaching that class actually, because, <laughs> because it blows their minds because, because sadly they are so steeped in this stuff. It, it sounds like such a wonderful class. I'm thinking up, oh, we have to have Harriet back. So now we can talk about fat phobia and feminism and the, because that it is, it is true. It, our culture is steeped in the thin ideal that was not always the ideal. It used to be the larger that you are, the more money that you had, the more ability you had to feed yourself and sit while other people were doing stuff. I mean, and these are literally perceptions that become I, ideals. I, I that's sorry, everyone. I just sort of like teetered out when I got to that point. But but that's what happens. It's a collective perception that changes everybody's idea of what someone is supposed to look like, be like, think like. And there it is. Right. And then you see that, you know, so it's bad enough in the sort of the way it becomes socially constructed, right? The way we all internalize that and sort of inflict it on ourselves and other people. But then you also obviously see it in the medical establishment, you know, and then you suddenly you're getting these layers of fat phobia and insistent messaging, you know, from people who are supposed to have your best interests at heart, you know, your doctors are supposed to be guarding your health. And we know that a lot of what doctors say and feel about patients uh, in terms of their size and health is not rooted in any evidence or reality. It's just, I mean, obviously doctors are people too. So they have the same social biases that we all have, but you know, you get this from everywhere. You get it from friends and family, from doctors, you get it from media, you know, it's just, it's, it's very hard even as an adult to, to stand against those messages and think critically, even just in your own mind to push back against them. You know, kids don't have a chance really. They really don't have a chance. You even talked about, and now forgive me, I can't remember which book it was. I'm pulling from a few. You talked about how we've, uh, how our culture even tries to use fat shaming as an incentive to actually get people to motivated to lose weight. And all that does is just coat people in more judgment, more shame, and less less feeling like they have have any control over their lives. It's, it's just, it's, it's a horrific, horrific cycle. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I have a lot of thoughts. About Go that. for it. Let's hear it, Harriet. Um, and they can all be pretty much encapsulated in one sentence, which is if fat shaming was an effective healthcare strategy, we wouldn't have any fat people left because our culture has so, you know, vehemently and continuously fat shamed. And we've all learned to fat shame ourselves too. So, you know, if that really made people healthier, we would be in great shape, but it actually has the opposite effect. Um, you know, being fat shamed, just like being a member of any other marginalized group, right? In the U.S., being a person of color, being, uh, you know, not straight or not cis um, gender, you know, being poor, all of those things you know, put you at greater health risk. They don't improve your health, you know, social determinants of health. 
they raise your cortisol levels. It, you know, physically and psychologically uh, damages your health. So, and in fact, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Deb Burgard, who's, uh, yeah, she's fabulous, a uh, uh, therapist in the Bay Area in California. And she has been insisting for years, and I think this is so true, that, you know, you can't look at the research on weight and health and draw any conclusions up from those correlations unless you're also taking into account the experience of fat shaming and fat phobia. Because anyone, I mean, frankly, you don't even have to be fat in this culture to have experienced fat shaming, especially if you're a woman. Um, we know that that affects people across the weight spectrum, but, um, you know, it's hard to overestimate the effects of being and feeling that level of shame. And I, I actually recently had an experience myself that sort of taught me that, um, which I can tell you about. Yeah, I'd love to hear. So a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea and uh, I went to, <clears throat> you know, went had a sleep study. Oh yeah, you have apnea. Here's this machine. You're going to use it, blah, blah. And anyone who's ever used a CPAP knows it's really hard to get used to them and you, know, you don't want to use them and whatever. So I had to go back for my three-month checkup and I was super proud of myself because I had used it faithfully every night and I was getting the hang of it and I you know, didn't love it, but I was hanging in there with it and I went to see the pulmonologist kind of expecting to get a pat on the back, like, good job, you know. But instead, what I got was like this long lecture about weight loss and how you should really lose weight and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I pushed back some because I'm educated enough to have the resources to do that. And, you know, at which point he he looked me up and down and said, well, I guess you're not that fat. So this is part one of the story. So I walked out of the office just crushed, sobbing, you know, like thinking to myself, oh my God, oh my God, I have to go home. I have to go on a diet. I can never eat again. You know, like all of these really toxic thoughts that I know better, but it was so powerful. So, okay, fast forward. I immediately quit that practice and got another pulmonologist who I just saw a couple of weeks ago, a woman, a nurse practitioner. And I kind of went into the office very anxiously, right? But, you know, you have to see someone once a year. And I made a couple comments to her that were very self-deprecating. Like, I know my apnea would probably be better if I lost some weight. And she said, I'm going to show you something, you know, because she had done a physical exam and then she, she pulled something up online and it was basically images of like drawings of people with their mouths open and their airways. And there were four of them and it was a scale she was showing me. And she took me through and she said like, here, this person on this end, you know, their mouth is open. You can see their airway, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other end was a person whose mouth was open. You couldn't see their airway at all. It was obscured by the architecture of their whatever. And she looked at me and she said, you're number four over here. This is the architecture of your body. You could lose all the weight in the world. It's not going to fix your apnea. And, you know, this is just the way you're constructed. And I burst into tears, you know, and, and again, like, I know all this stuff, but like, you cannot overestimate or underestimate, I don't know which one it is, the experience of going through that and then having someone just point out to you like, oh, no, this is just, you know, this isn't something you've done to yourself. This isn't something you've brought upon yourself. This is like the way you're built, basically, and it's just too bad. 
because you're always going to have this, but oh, well, we have a treatment for it. And I don't know, that experience really, really taught me a lot about um, the power of those messages and, you know, kind of surprised me that, again, even with all my education and awareness of it, I'm still 100% susceptible to it. Um, and it just makes me feel even more strongly that uh, people, especially medical people, need education around this subject. I think what came up for me is a few things. First of all, what it, it breaks my heart that you were exposed to it, that you experienced it, that anybody does. I don't know if everybody knows, though, that they have the right to walk away and go to another doctor. Mm -hmm. That's courageous for you. I also don't know that people know they have a right to say something to the doctor. Like, please don't talk to me that way. That's not mm -hmm. why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I love the fact that you said I, I don't have to stand for this. Like there are alternatives where I can be treated better. Unfortunately, the the shaming had been so internalized that you went to this next appointment searching for a non-judgmental place, but you were so afraid of it, you brought it up first. Like, yeah. I know I need to lose some weight, but it was almost like your armor to be like, I'm going to tell you first before you point it. And I think the tears, and I, please, I don't want to speak for you, Harriet, but was just this complete crumble of your armor of like being seen by someone seen with no judgment as a whole person, not, not about a weight, not about a number, not about a skin color, not about anything. Nope. These are just the facts, Harriet. Exactly. And, you know, I think if you are a person of color or of size or, you know, fill in the blank, if you don't happen to conform physically to the cultural ideals of the moment, um, you know, you're going to get a lot of that. And it took me a long time to, to be able to walk away from a doctor like that, you know, to be able to, um, you know, when the, when they immediately try to weigh you, when you walk into an appointment, just to say, no, thank you. And keep going you know, unless there's a reason, like if there's a medical reason to be weighed, yeah, okay, fine. But other, mostly there's not. Um, so yeah, and it's hard, you know, I mean, it's hard to go against the mainstream anyway. And it's really hard on this subject because I think just because it's reinforced on so many levels, health, attractiveness, you know, sort of social and cultural capital, those are all sort of wrapped into this, you know, these issues and and being a woman, you know, f femininity, uh, there, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. So that brings me back to your, your first book. Well, it's not your first book, but Brave Girl Eating. So what do you, how, as a mother, you see your child, she has anorexia nervosa, and how do you help guide her through this? Well, what we did was basically uh, follow this uh, path known as family-based treatment, which uh, sort of says, you know, we don't know what causes eating disorders. It's true. People have a lot of theories, but we don't really know. And it's not like there's one thing. You know, there's lots of variables, genetics, environment, all kinds of things. So FBT kind of says, we're going to put that aside since it's not really useful to worry about what exactly is causing it. And we're going to focus on what helps people get better. 
And we know that what helps people get better from anorexia is eating, you know, and gaining weight. Um, and that's true across the board, whether you are underweight or whether you are quote normal weight or higher on the BMI chart, because you can obviously have anorexia at any size and at any weight. So, um, so eating, um, eating regularly and eating in a sort of environment of love and support and encouragement and consistency. That's what we tried to do. <laughs> um, it is not easy, but, um, but it, it's, you know, we used to read this kid's book to our kids when they were little. It was, we're going on a picnic, you know, and these people going on a picnic, they keep encountering all these obstacles. There's a bog, you know, or there's like a mountain. And every time they go through this refrain, oh, no, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. And that's kind of like how it is with eating disorder. I mean, it's like that with a lot of things in life, right? You have to go through it. And so you just have to go through it. And I think also, um, you know, a lot of the language that is used around eating disorders, certainly when our daughter was diagnosed, I hope it's beginning to change now, but so much of the language is about, you know, uh, this person won't eat, this person refuses to eat, this person, you know, it's very, it's very suggestive of choice. And I think one of the things that really helped us was clearly understanding that this, this was not choice on our daughter's part. Like, she was in the grip of these compulsions. And so, and these, you know, the terror that she was feeling. Um, and so then it just became, how can we support her through that, um, through this very, like, you know, I'm sure it's the hardest thing she will ever have had to do in her life. And I think, you know, coming through something like that is life-changing for people. So, um, so yeah, that's just what we tried to do. You know, there is something that you were talking about just a few minutes ago when you were saying that that food is so important for the recovery process. It It is not the only thing, as we all know, but one of the reasons why it's so critical, and I don't think people understand this, and you were alluding to this, a starved brain is not able to integrate any new information, and it's not able to process or rationalize or calm the nervous system down. And a starved brain can be in any body size. It is not in what people think is the quote-unquote person with anorexia, malnourished, bone showing. You can be at any weight, and if you are restricting you have a malnourished brain. Correct. That's right. And, uh, you know, I mean, our daughter happened to fit the sort of uh, stereotype, but since that time, I've known so many people, you know, of all, many different body sizes and many different situations. And I remember once asking uh, Daniel LaGrange, who uh, was one of the people who brought FBT to the United States from the UK, you know, talking to him about this whole idea of why is the food part so important? And he said, well, you know what happens if you do insight-oriented therapy with a person with active anorexia? He said, you get a very insightful corpse, basically. Because, yeah, your brain, you can't make any of those connections. Um, and so, yeah, for our daughter, she, she certainly had some therapy, but it really wasn't the slightest, I mean, really the only thing the therapy did for that first year was support 
us and her through this grueling and very gruesome process of her having to eat so much food so consistently when it was so scary for her. What was it like, because you talk about it in the book, reintegrating her back into life, school, like, and, and it's so funny because it's one of the things that you you put in your um, your reader's guide about that there has to be a plan in place. Mm-hmm. Nothing. <laughs> this is not one of these like, we'll deal with it when we get there. Like when I used to run residential programs, therapists within the first three days of a client admitting already started their discharge planning. We need to know right away for a number of reasons. One, anything can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. Someone could be discharged from treatment or need to go back into school. And these plans take time and preparation. So what was it like for you? I mean, it was, uh, you know, we were lucky in the sense that during that first bout with it, she was living with us. So we had more leverage and more control over how the plan was going to go. So, um, but I do think I know that that's one of the reasons that there are such huge levels of recidivism and relapse in eating disorders is because, you know, people, uh, people go to residential programs and, or people go to, you know, partial like POP partial outpatient, partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient program. Yep. And maybe things go well there. But then you have to reintegrate, as you say, back into life. And so um, so you have to be ready to deal with that, you know, which is one reason why, like, for our daughter who was 14, like, it didn't make sense. Like, we were told you need to send her to, to a residential treatment, and it didn't make sense to us. We wanted to try it at home because I was already thinking then, like, well, she's going to have to come home. Like, what's going to be different then? Like, what's, you know, whatever she whatever is happening has to happen here. So, um, and you know, a lot of what that means is getting the support in whether you're living with your family of origin or some other, you know, whatever your family situation is, um, that has to be, that has to be there for you. And people have to learn, what does it mean? What do you need? Like, for example, our daughter, what she really needed, one of the things she needed was She needed us to sit with her after she ate, you know, after she would eat a meal when she was just so devastated by guilt and shame and all the voice of the eating disorder screaming at her. Like she needed us there to sort of support her and distract her. And, you know, like, so that's not necessarily something you would have imagined before you know about this, right? You might think, oh, well, the meal's done. That's, that's it till next time. But so there's just a lot that people and I think it's just really important to understand as much as you can what what your loved one is going through. I mean, you're not going through it, so you can't understand it all the way. But, you know, it was very powerful for me to understand how scary eating was for her, that it wasn't like, I won't do it because I think I'm too fat. You know, like all of the words that she put on it, really what it boiled down to was this terror. But then once, you know, we could then we could sort of strategize about how to support her in that. Well, I think it's also important in something that you illustrated is it made you think about your own body and how you feel about food when your daughter was so terrified of it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And not everybody does that. Some people say this is their problem. I know what I'm doing or I'm older and I require different new, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and you didn't. So tell me a little bit about what that was like. Well, I mean, you know, I had always been a person who struggled with like my own body image. And, you know, I grew up in a family where like, you know, we were always a little on the heavier side and, you know, there was a lot of criticism about that. My mother was always on a diet. She, in fact, she, she dragged me to Weight Watchers when I was a teenager. And then she went on to become a Weight Watchers lecturer. And, you know, I'm pretty sure she was on a diet the day till the day she died, you know, and I say, okay, her choice, whatever. But, um, you know, I had a lot of shame and I had a lot of disordered eating sort of embedded in my head. And so um, it it really going through this process with her made me confront a lot of that stuff. And frankly, other people made us confront it too, because, um, you know, as I wrote in the book, like when my daughter was very, very gaunt, like at the very beginning, as, as we were starting treatment, people would literally come up to her on the street, women, always women, and say, you are so gorgeous, you know, you could model, like, you know, and they would give her all this praise and all this reinforcement. I mean, she looked like she was dying, you know, Um, and then as she started to gain weight, and she also grew, like, that year, she grew, like, five inches or something, you know, because her body had been starved and stunted, and now it had nutrition, so she looked fantastic, and no one ever came up to her and said those things, you know, just, just, just actually, because we tend to, when we internalize things, we, we always sort of feel like, well, I deserve the worst of everything. But when you see it happening to your child, it, it's very different. And you can step back from it and say, okay, this has nothing to do with me and what I deserve. My kid does not deserve that. Like, no, that's not okay. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I just recently talked about this on the podcast on one of the other episodes that I was with a group of people, women that were younger than me, and they have young children. And one of the women said to me, because she knows what I do for work, and she said, my seven-year-old daughter just asked me, why do I eat differently than her? And she said, this, this brilliant woman said, that day I stopped dieting. I will never do this again because my seven-year-old is already looking and she's already asking. And we live in a culture that actually normalizes disordered eating. We actually praise it. 100%. And so she said, I can't shelter her from everything and everyone, but I can at least do what I can in the home. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because I had grown up with a mother who was very uh, critical of my body. Um, I swore that I would not do that to my daughters, but what I didn't understand was that being critical of my own body was just as bad. So yes, I, and I think it takes a lot of guts to, uh, to be able to do what that mom did and say, oh my God, you know, this is because I have talked with so many families where, you know, one or the other of the parents often the mom, but not always, or sometimes both, you know, we're just so invested in 
their own body image, in the, in their child fitting into a certain body image that they were not able to be really helpful and supportive to their kid in recovery from anorexia. Um, and that just seems really sad to me. You know, like it's more important to you that your child runs track um, and is therefore as lean as possible. Like that's more important to you than the fact that your kid could drop dead because of an electrolyte imbalance or, you know, or, or starve to death or be so depressed and anxious that they, they try to take their own life. So. And what I also want to say to add on that is that I also have compassion for the parents because I often see young children, the parents come into the office, they don't realize that they're fat shaming their child because they're just pulling from their own experiences of being bullied from being overweight. So by the way, let me make sure I, I frame this correctly. I'm not giving anybody a hall pass. I'm not saying, oh, makes sense. Now forget about it. But this is how insidious it is. Mom and dad come in. They both were bullied for their weight. They don't want to see their child go through it. And what they don't realize, to some degree, they're bullying their own child. Right, right. It, it's a, it, if you do realize that, it's a, I'm sure it's a horrifying, sickening feeling. Because, I mean, yes, parents, I've heard a lot of stories now from my college students, you know, once we get talking about this, the stories just come ripping out, you know, and it'll be things like, oh, we had a pizza night at our house and everybody got to sleep over, but I was only allowed to eat one piece of pizza. Everyone else could have as much as they wanted, like all kinds of things. And once they sort of cotton on as young adults, it's, I think it really helps them to understand. And I'm sure you've seen that in your practice too. Yes. And there's another thing that you had commented on and forgive me everyone for, I keep going back and being like a few minutes ago, but you had made a comment that even if you don't put diet expectations on your children, if you yourself are doing it for, to your, you know, trying to manipulate your body. And the most incredible example is, I don't know if you ever read Andrea's Voice by Doris Smeltzer. Oh, no. Although I've met, I met Doris once, but no, I haven't read it. Doris was, uh, I've, I've had the good fortune of, of knowing Doris quite well for many, many years. And one of the things she talks about, and she says it so eloquently and so painfully, is that she would stand in front of her mirror, Doris would, and criticize her body. She's like, I would never criticize Andrea's body, but I would stand in front of the mirror and be like, I don't like my hips. I don't like this. I don't like that. And then Andrea would look at her reflection in the mirror and say, but I have that same body. So now that means that I'm not lovable. Mom might not love me like this. I can't like myself like this. Right. I, it's, it's a powerful and really painful example of how, and by the way, obviously not blaming Andrea's eating disorder on this one example, but it, it is powerful. You know, I, I watched my mother get dressed every morning and how long it took her to find an outfit and appearance had to be everything. I mean, we look up to our parents, right? Of course. And we identify with them and we learn from them. That's our job as kids is to learn both the spoken and unspoken rules of the road, you know? And yeah, so we learn to, well, as women, especially, we learn that our main value comes from how we look and how, whether we fit into these norms and, you know, that also is going to determine whether we're lovable and whether we're loved and 
whether we succeed in the world. And it's really, really sad. Yeah, it is. I I know this is an interesting question, but it also comes from your reading guide, which I love. And one of the questions that you are asking people in this reading guide is what surprised you most in the book for body? And we're referring, I'm referring to body of truth. And I'm wondering what kinds of answers you've gotten from that, because I bet they're all over the, all over the map. Yeah. I mean, um, I think people are surprised that it hasn't always been this way. They're surprised uh, by some of the interpretations of the data and the research. So like um, part of what I was really trying to do in that book was take a critical look at that research. Like, okay, we hear, we hear all this being fat is bad for your health. Being thin is good for your health. Can we unpack that? Can we actually look at the studies? Can we, whatever. And I think that um, people are often surprised, for example, that there's this whole body of uh, research that shows that for some people with certain kinds of chronic illnesses like diabetes, heart issues, things like that, uh, being thinner actually translates into worse health outcomes, not better. Um, You know, they're surprised to hear that if you sort of map the data as Catherine Flegel of the CDC did, if you map the data of people's uh, BMI category versus their mortality, right? The messages that we get would make you think that like, well, the fatter you are, the the shorter your life's going to be. And that's, you know, but that's actually not true that uh, mortalities rise at either end of the spectrum. And, you know, you're at the least Uh, risk of early death when you're in that sort of overweight to mildly obese category on the BMI chart. And I think also another thing people are surprised by is when they really understand how much money there is to be made um, from diet culture. And, you know, I mean, just like with anything, when, when there's vested interests, people are not going to be, you know, you can't assume that what you're hearing is the impartial truth. They are swayed, they are influenced. And there is enormous money being made in the whole bariatric surgery uh, world, plus the whole, you know, diet, you know, Weight Watchers, Noom, all of these things. They just, they're, they're like cash cows, basically. So those are some of the things I've heard. Well, it also made me think about when you, you talk about the difference between correlation and causation. And, and, and there's a difference, but people don't, people don't understand that. I don't know if there's anything you can say about that, but I loved that part in the book. I know it was, I think it was at the beginning. I was like, I loved that. So is there anything you can share about that? Well, I mean, I think that goes back to um, the comment I made earlier about Deb Burgard saying like, you know, so we have, we, there are these correlations, right? That doctors will tell you, you know, if you're fatter, uh, you know, you're more likely to get type two diabetes. You're more likely to have heart issues. You're more likely to die of this and that. And so, yeah, number one correlation, just because these things go together, doesn't mean one causes the other. Um, so like people with yellow teeth are more likely to die of, uh, lung cancer, but that's not because yellow teeth are bad for your lungs. It's because they're, they're what happens when you smoke and smoking is associated with more lung cancers. But also, as Deborah Gard says, you know, you can't look at those correlations without also understanding this other 
invisible piece of fat shaming, weight stigma, fat phobia, and what, how does that impact health? Because we're not just bodies, you know, we're brains, we're emotional systems, and, you know, the mind-body connection is very powerful. So, but I do love that, you know, I, I would, I want to get, that's my next tattoo, I think, like, the correlation, you know, equal sign with a slash through it, causation, so... Okay, so as I often say during an interview, we just found the title for this episode. I hope right now my producer is writing this down. Jen's scribbling down, correlation does not equal causation. Wait, or is it the other way around? I just no, no, missed. that's right. Correlation okay. not equal causation. It's a great saying. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Harriet, I, I am so sad to say that we're starting to wind down. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with the listeners or anything you just wanted to sit to add or say? Um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, like social media on social media, I see it as such a, I know we're not talking about it and this seems like it's random, but it's connected. So I think that social media gives us the opportunity to see some different kinds of bodies and hear some different kinds of voices. And that's fantastic. But I also want to kind of make sure that your listeners don't fall into the trap of, you know, I don't even know how to explain this, but like we are now often blamed for not feeling better about our bodies as if like having a better sense of your body, having better body image was something you could just will yourself into. So I guess what I would just really like to make the point of like, you know, it's normal to be, uh, you know, to have the cultural ideals and norms deeply embedded in your psyche. It's not something to blame yourself about. Um, and it's something that, you know, like I work on it every day and I'll be working on that for the rest of my life. And I'll never get to like where I would love to get to because I grew up with this. So I just hope people don't, you know, use it as another, another reason to beat themselves up. Harriet, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that was really important. Before we end, though, I do have a final question for you. And that question is, Harriet, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know what it would say. Come on, you know. <laughs> Correlation does not equal causation. <laughs> Harriet says correlation does not equal causation. I think that would be great. Oh, I would love that. I could think of a lot less flattering things. <laughs> Harriet, again, it has been such a pleasure. This 45 minutes just flew right by. So I, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of this podcast. Oh, and thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's so great that, you know, you're having these conversations and putting them out there because we don't talk about these things in the right way enough. I agree. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. 
For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.